Hi, this is Kim Dixon, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. And today we are going to continue with part two of Private Lyle Knutson's experience as a prisoner of war in the Philippines. This story is so long that there's actually going to be a part three. So if you remember from last week, Private Knutson's outfit was on the island of Mindanao, about 600 miles south of Manila, and they had just given their weapons to the Japanese and didn't know what would happen next. So going back to his story, he says, it appeared that the Japanese had prepared and practiced a formal surrender ceremony. They marched to the center of the grove, shouting orders, flashing swords, and executing maneuvers customary in a formal dress parade. This ceremony continued for at least an hour, and then we were ordered to start moving for abreast. When we reached the road, the Japanese guards joined the formation from either side. I would estimate that there were two guards for every 16 POWs. Our march continued without incident for the first few hours. As we continued down the road, the formation became strung out at a much greater distance, and that enabled our Japanese guard to become much more relaxed in their treatment of us, as they were unobserved by their superiors. They had noticed our wristwatches, rings, and other articles, and they wanted to take them for their own. Moving into the line of march, they would point to the article they wanted and make a threatening thrust with their bayonet. Almost everyone willingly handed over. With few exceptions, the individual was dragged from formation and beaten until he relinquished the items or it was forcefully removed. My wristwatch was taken early in the march, an article that I would not need for the next two and a half years. We were never allowed to rest, and we marched all day. Later that evening, we arrived at what must have been a Philippine Army training camp. A number of temporary barracks and other buildings were located here. We were ushered into a group of these barracks separated from the Filipino soldiers. A fence had never been constructed in closing the military, but we knew that we were surrounded by Japanese guards. The following day, we were issued rice, salt, and a limited number of other supplies with which to prepare our food. The food was a drastic change compared to our normal diet. However, we soon realized that this food was necessary if we hoped to survive. So Private Knutson says that for the first few weeks, the guards left them alone, but occasionally they would come in and remove the highest-ranking officers. The next highest-ranking officer was installed as a camp commander. He talks about a piano in one of the buildings, and one of the Americans was an accomplished pianist. He would play the piano for two or three hours a day, the prisoners were never allowed to congregate, but they could hear the music from their barracks. He tells us about another camp that was being built a short distance away with a guard tower and high barbed wire fences. There were barracks there with a source of water, latrines, and a place to cook. And as soon as it was completed, they moved the Americans there. It was called the Malabalay Prison, and he estimates that there were less than 400 Americans there. He talks about the Japanese strategy to prevent the Americans from escaping. After several prisoners had escaped, they were forcefully ushered out of their barracks and lined up in the center of the campground. The guards had positioned four or five machine guns, which Private Knutson said if they had fired would have wiped out all of the American prisoners. We didn't have any idea of the purpose for what appeared to be our eventual slaughter. We stood in formation for approximately two hours. I became so weak from fright that I was ready to collapse. I believe the only thing that saved us was a last-minute order from the commanding officer. He immediately placed into effect an order that listed all POWs in groups of 10. The name of each group was kept by the camp commander, but we never knew which list we were on. 
We were told if any POW escaped or even attempted to escape, the other nine would be executed. He also says, at first this control introduced distrust and suspicion within the men, but this soon disappeared as more pressing problems occurred. Not long after this, they sorted the men into two groups, those who could work and those that couldn't. He was in the group that could work, and they were marched to the coast where a Japanese freighter was waiting to take them to the Davao Penal Colony on the south tip of Mindanao. He described the camp. The prison compound was in a region of swamps and tropical jungles. It was formerly constructed as a penal colony for long-term criminal offenders. Over the years, the inmates had cleared the jungle growth from a large area that was used for farming. They had planted rice, sugarcane, fruit-bearing trees, and coffee, and they also raised chicken and caribou. The DeVeo prison was designed to be self-supporting and was located in an area that made escape extremely difficult. The barracks were constructed of woven bamboo covered with a metal roof similar to the other buildings they had been in. 50-gallon metal drums were placed on the outside of each corner of the building to collect the rainwater so they could drink it. They were given different work details, including plowing the rice paddies using the caribou, and he talks about how difficult those caribou were, harvesting abaca, and I don't think I'm saying that right, which is a tropical plant used to make rope, and cutting timber from the rainforest. Private Knudsen says, at first we were confident that victory would be ours within a short time and our confinement would not be that long. We all looked forward to our release and were making plans to return home. But soon we lost all track of time and never knew what day or month it was. We never received any news, so we didn't know how the war was progressing. He goes on to talk about how badly the war was going in the first year and concludes that no news was probably good news. He says it's possible that many men's lives were saved by not knowing how the war was progressing. I'm sure that that knowledge would have affected me adversely. He goes on to say that hundreds of American servicemen interred by the Japanese never survived the severe treatment they received in the camps. Most lives were lost during the first few days of our surrender and during the early months of our confinement. I believe that the three most common causes of death was diet, lack of medication, and physical abuse. He writes that they were always hungry and would steal anything edible. Even though watercress and other greens grew in abundance and there was many coconut trees with fruit falling to the ground, their pleas to the Japanese to allow them to gather the food was always denied. He says, we never received any type of medication. Our doctors and medical personnel were able to salvage some of their instruments and most of their medical supplies when we were interned. But this was the only medication available, so it was used very sparingly and only when absolutely necessary. We were always subject to physical abuse. Sometimes punishment resulted over a minor infraction, and at other times we witnessed the beatings and punishment of prisoners for no apparent reason other than the mood of the soldier. We were subjected to long marches with no rest, food, or water, and when we were transported, we were always crammed and crowded into an area smaller than the livestock being hauled to market. We were deprived of sanitation, food, water, and sometimes even air to breathe. The events and circumstances began to change about May or June of 1944, when some of the prisoners were moved to the Lasang prison camp, where the Japanese were working on an airstrip. He and his friend had been chosen in a hand-picked deal, and the job was so immense we knew that we would be there for a long time. And then he talks about getting a small Red Cross package. He said it was a cardboard box about 12 inches square, and it was crammed tight with the most delicious food, candy, cigarettes, cards, and also contained toilet articles, such as toothbrushes, toothpaste, and soap. 
and I'm not sure how many there were that they had to share, but it was one of the highlights of his experience. He said the small box lifted our spirits and morale and gave us renewed hope. It gave us the determination to survive beyond imagination and words to describe. We hoarded the little box and made it last as long as possible. We were acting like a changed group of prisoners, and I think the guards noticed this change in us, and it started to affect their actions and treatment before us. We know from other stories of POWs from Weber County that as the Americans got closer to invasion, the Japanese were confronted with the problem of what they're going to do with their prisoners. In some camps, the Japanese made immediate plans to execute all prisoners when the Americans landed. Private Knutson tells us the Japanese commanding officer always rode a horse and followed our formation back and forth to work each day. We had given him the name of Little Caesar. Around this time, something new was added. A Japanese crew carrying a machine gun was placed at the front and rear of our formation. These weapons represented a greater threat to our survival, but more importantly, they added probability to the many circulating rumors that we so desperately wanted to believe. Little Caesar would shout an order, and guards on each side of the formation would run to the shelter of the drain ditch with their rifles aimed in our direction. At the same time, the machine guns would be positioned, ready to fire at us from rear and front. Another order issued by Little Caesar would bring the guards out of the ditches with fixed bayonets, running and shouting to where we lay on the runway. Most often, their bayonets would be pulled from the ground only inches from our bodies. The first time we experienced this exercise, it was frightening and seemed life-threatening. We had no way of knowing that it wasn't for real and was only for practice. But after this, we could expect this exercise to be repeated every three to four days for as long as we remained at Lasang. We would frequently hear the noise of airplanes. The runway we were working on needed much more work for completion, but the airstrip was being used more and more by the Japanese but we seldom heard the Japanese flying late at night. However, more often we could lay awake and hear the sound of aircraft. More experienced Air Force personnel swore the noise we could hear was being made by American planes. I listened with hope, not knowing, but wanting to believe it was true. I remembered the work that I had done on the crew of our B-17 and the oxygen bottles I maintained for high-altitude missions. Hearing the noise of aircraft flying late at night was first only occasional, but now, almost every night, we would hear the sound of airplanes. It was a pleasure to hear the sound, and every inmate in the prison compound would lie awake listening. The planes that they were hearing were American, and they were inflicting heavy damage, but Private Knutson and the others didn't find out that the Japanese were taking heavy casualties and desperately trying to hold on to Mindanao. They had decided to evacuate the southern half of the island and assembled every vessel possible to salvage anything of value, including the Americans. We traveled the distance to the coast and the docks where we boarded a freighter tied together by rope. We were all entirely convinced that we were winning the war, and at this time escape would have never even remotely crossed our minds. The rumor was circulating that we were being moved to be traded for an equal number of Japanese prisoner of war. Most of our inmates were able to complete the march to the docks. A truck followed us and picked up the prisoners who were faltering along the way. So this is where I'm going to end part two because he's going to go to the docks and be transferred to the ship, the Shinyo Maru, which has its own incredible story of what happened to it. So thanks for joining. Come back next week for the part three of this story.